like to uh, draw your attention to the Word of God found in Psalm 51 this morning. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will get, would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship this morning, to come before you and look to your word. We pray that your spirit would make his presence known with us this morning, Lord. Lead us to repentance. Lead us to conviction of sin. Lead us to the cross of Christ. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51 this morning, and um, we're just going to be just... I I don't even think we can scratch the surface of Psalm 51 here this morning. There is a depth here to this God-breathed word, this song of repentance and salvation from David's heart. I don't think we'll ever, on this side of glory, reach the depth of it. Um, It's been on my heart for the last several months. a friend of mine that pastors a church down in Canby, uh, Brad Long, has been preaching worship from the Psalms and preached on this last Sunday. And I just can't seem to get away from thinking about Psalm 51 and, the, and all that is here. And like I said this morning, we're, we're just going to scratch the surface. I kind of feel like, uh, you know, you've seen those old cartoons where a guy's in a boat and it's filling with water. And he takes a bucket and he keeps on throwing out the water, but there's a hole in the boat, so it just keeps filling back up. 
It's kind of what I feel like trying to even get down into the depths of Psalm 51. There's so much here and it just keeps filling up as you look at it. Uh, It's no wonder then that Charles Spurgeon, probably the greatest preacher of all time after the apostles and Christ himself, spoke of his study of this passage in this way. He concluded, It is a bush burning with fire yet not consumed, and out of it a voice seemed to cry to me, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet. The psalm is very human. Its cries and sobs are of one born of woman, but it is freighted with an inspiration all divine, as if the great father were putting words into his child's mouth. Such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion. But commented on, ah, where is he who having attempted it can do other than blush at his defeat? This is possibly the most powerful psalm contained in the collection of songs to adore, to worship, to to cry out to God the Father. Like I said, we'll bit scratch the surface this morning as we look into the passage of God's Word. Um, I pray that we will have the time to look at and will be used this, this passage to draw us closer to our Savior in worship and utter gratitude for what He's done and provided for us for forgiveness of sin and the righteousness of Christ applied to His people through the gift of Himself on the cross. For those who haven't experienced salvation, may it be used by the Spirit to convict of sin, lead to faith and repentance, and a sight of our Savior who died, was buried, and rose again for our justification in victory over sin. This is an appropriate subject for us to look at, and we're not going to look at the whole psalm because we just don't have time. But this is an appropriate subject for us to look at as we approach taking the Lord's table today. Um, May this word speak to us and draw us into submission, humility, repentance, and remembrance of what Christ has done for us. The background we read earlier, and for those who are listening, or if you want to write it down in your notes as as a note taker, the background for this psalm can be found in 2 Samuel 11. If you look at the pericope headings, which most of our Bibles have, um, this psalm is entitled in the ESV pericope headings, Created Me a a Clean Heart, O God. And it was to the choir master. It's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went into him and confronted him of his sin. And I want to look at that. That instance there, and we'll turn to 2 Samuel 12, where Nathan goes in to David and is sent with the word of the Lord. So let's look at 2 Samuel 12, and we'll read a few verses here. This is the the, the 2 Samuel 11 passage that we read in our, our congregational reading this morning, is the account of the sin of adultery and murder by David. Um. In Psalm 51, we have, after Nathan has confronted him, we have this account of true repentance, true mourning and lamenting over the sin that David saw in his own heart. 
So let's read the, uh, the passage here in 2 Samuel 12 where Nathan is, is confronting David. <clears throat> and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but the one but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling, the rich man, that is, he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, This took boldness. He's standing before the king of Israel, who has all authority in Israel. And he stands before him and he says, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and became sick. Well, we have here an amazing way that the Lord dealt with David concerning his sin. We, we see that David as we also read in our congregational reading from 1 Kings 15, that David had not turned 
from what the Lord had commanded him except in one instance. Except in this. This was David's sin. But here in Psalm 51, and we'll look at this, we see the hope and the reality of forgiveness and salvation which leads to worship and adoration of the one who saves his people with a powerful hand and forgives them all their iniquities. Here in Samuel, 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 15 that we've read, here we have the Spirit of God working through the Word of God to Nathan who confronts David with his deep sin. In the first verse of 2 Samuel 12, we have the Lord, Yahweh, the I Am, sent Nathan to David. Sent him to confront and to be the tool used that David would be convicted of his own sin. Well, what was this sin that David committed? Well, was it murder? Yes. Was it adultery? It was. But I think that there's something even deeper that we can look at here. And this is a case that we will see in reality with all of our sin, including this of David's. If you remember when Christ was dealing with the scribes and Pharisees, there were many times they would come to him and they would say things like, your disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. Or, why are you healing on the Sabbath? That's not lawful for you to heal on the Sabbath. Or this or that. Many times Christ was confronted by the scribes and Pharisees with what they thought was outwardly not following the law. If you remember in Matthew 15, Christ was dealing with these same scribes and Pharisees, and what he was doing was continually showing them that it wasn't what was on the outside that defiles a man. It wasn't what they take in from the outside. He said those things which you take in, they're taken through your system and they're expelled. It's what is coming from the heart of man that defiles a man. There's something much deeper than this physical outward keeping of the law. Right? Jesus said that if you hate your brother, well, you've not committed the outward act of murder, but what have you done? You've committed murder in your heart. If you look at a woman with lust, you haven't committed outward adultery, but you've committed adultery in your heart. So there's something that is internal. This sin that is in us is what defiles a man. And oftentimes what the Pharisees would do is they would take the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and they would adhere outwardly to it. Paul himself even said, concerning the law, blameless. He had outwardly kept every part of the law, but inwardly he knew what? What does he tell us? Yes, he's the chief of sinners. It's about the heart. It's about what comes from the heart. And what comes from sinful man's heart is sinful. What comes out of the flesh is what? It's flesh. So I think this comes into play here. And if we, if we look at this for a moment, it will, I think we'll see this. We, between 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12, 
it appears that we can infer that at least nine months have elapsed. Well, why do we say that? Well, she conceived, she carried that child through term, and then that child was born before Nathan the prophet comes to him because he tells him that God is going to afflict that child with sickness, and then that child is afflicted. So there's at least nine months here, right? Um, David had evidently forgotten this sin that he had committed or had so placed it out of his mind that he was living like it had never existed. Uh, It's often the case, I think, in our own lives. We have so many forgotten sins. We're so prone to sinning. We're so prone to, to doing that which our flesh desires It's so commonplace for us that we just forget about them. And we we oftentimes during those periods we're removed from prayer. We're removed from reading the Word of God. We're removed from the assembling of ourselves together. Those things that God has placed in our lives to draw us close to Him, to convict us of sin to lead us to repentance, and we, we neglect those things. And we don't see our sin. We're not pricked by the conviction of the Word and the sorrow over offending and really spitting in the face of our Creator and violating His will and His purpose for our lives. So what laws did, did David break? Well, let's, let's take a look at the depth of this sin that he committed we see that Nathaniel comes and speaks to him, and there's, there's as if there was no remembrance of what transpired. And, you know, you can kind of, humanly speaking, you can kind of imagine that that would be the case if it was something that we would look at as a little sin. You know, I committed a little white lie. Well, it's gone, it's forgotten. Well, this is murder and adultery. And I think we'll see here that there's even more. If we, if we were to go and look at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments that God gives us, which which gives us an amazing insight into the character of who God is, right? This is what the law does. It shows us who God is and what God says is holy. No other gods before him. No idols, you know, even in terms of the family situation. What is is holy to God? It's honoring your father and mother. This is what God says is holy. I've told the girls several times, you know, if you were to make a list of ten laws... That would be kind of the basis for everything. You'd never write down in your wisdom the ten laws that God did. These ten laws touch everything in society. Everything in our lives. they're, they're, They're all encompassing. All of our laws, the good laws that we have in society, can trace their roots right back to the Ten Commandments. Two of these commandments have really been outwardly, and and really three, have been outwardly broken. But if we look further at Christ's teaching on the law that we've we've briefly touched on, and, and go deeper than just that surface, than the outward, than the physical, then we'll see just how deep and how immersive, how expansive, I should say, the sin committed by David really was. If you were to go to Exodus 20, and you don't have to go there, Uh, If you later want to take a look at the the giving of the the Ten Commandments, you can in full. But in Exodus 23, 
the commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, outwardly, it doesn't appear that David broke this law. But did he? In reality, what was David doing when he stayed home, when he should have been? Now, remember, when, when Dad read for us 2 Samuel 11, it was the time of year when the kings went to war. What did David do? He stayed home resting on his couch. He wasn't doing what he should have been doing as a king. It was the season for the kings to go to the war. He was resting on his couch. He gets up, he goes out to the, to the rooftop, and he spies Uriah the Hittite's wife. Calls her to his room. And what was it that he... And then he puts, uh, puts Uriah out in front and has Uriah killed. But was this not him putting himself over God? Was this not even elevating Bathsheba above God? Was this not elevating his desires above the desires of God? David here had placed another God over Yahweh, over the great I Am, over the Creator. Well... What about the very next one, Exodus 24, idols? What was it that Bathsheba had become to him? What was it? I would venture to say that in the heart of the matter, David made Bathsheba an idol in his heart to worship, desiring to please himself and please her, and bowing his heart to the sin which he committed rather than devoting his heart to worship of the true God. Well, Exodus 13, you shall, uh, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Obviously, that's right out front. Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. Once again, that's right there, right? That's a, an outward breaking of that law. Well, what about Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal? What was the, what was the issue with what the story that Nathan brought to David was about this you, this lamb that his neighbor had, and the rich man went and stole that lamb and, and gave it as a meal to this man who had come to visit him, taking it away from the, from the poor man. Well, he stole that lamb. David stole Uriah the Hittite's wife. And even the genealogy of Christ in Matthew refers to Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah. This was his wife, and David stole her. What about the commandment about bearing false witness against your neighbor? Did you break that one? At the heart of David's sin? Well, David attempted to cover up his sin, didn't he? With Uriah. He, he brought Uriah in and, and tried to trick Uriah, took him off the battlefield, brought him into the palace, tried to trick him into going home and spending time with his wife to lay with his wife. So the conception of the child of David and Bathsheba would be covered up. Uriah was such an honorable man. 
he wouldn't do it. My, my masters are out fighting. They're in the field. They're dwelling in, in booths. I, you know, they're out in the field. I, I won't go home. I don't, I don't deserve, I'm not to be there. I'm to be out here. And then what does David do? David sends his own assassination letter for Uriah by Uriah's own hand. And Uriah is such a, a trustworthy individual, he doesn't break that seal of the order that's given. Could have opened it up and saw, well, I'm done, and fled. Never even opened a letter that was sent to Job. Well, what about coveting? Exodus twenty seventeen. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or his male servant. Or his female servant. Or his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Once again, here it is. Do you see how deep the root of sin runs in our lives? How intertangled when we're not doing what is honoring to the Lord. When as the king, David is not going out in the time when the kings go out to war, he's resting at home, sending out his men to do what he should be doing. And he gets entangled in all this sin. Look into our own hearts. See how deep our sin runs. How deep our violation of even the Ten Commandments of God. How deep our guilt runs before a holy God. If you've not been redeemed, if you've not been regenerated, if you're still unsaved, Search out your heart, and I pray that the Spirit would enlighten you to see how far down and how deep your guilt is. And your sin runs against an infinitely holy, righteous God who has all authority to say what is right and what is wrong. He abhors transgressions of His law, and what does Scripture tell us the punishment for sinning is? It's death. The death that David said was due to the man who took his neighbor's lamb. You as the creature have no right and no standing to violate and transgress what He commands and what He says is holy. He's the Creator. We are the creature. If we look back at Psalms 51, let's return there so we can start drawing this to a close. If I can find the right bookmark here. David, after being confronted by Nathan, is overcome with the abhorrence of his sin. He's moved to deep sorrow and conviction 
over that sin and he repents of it. In verse 1, he cries out to the Lord, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. He begs here for his sin to be blotted out. He knows his sin deserves death. Remember what he, what he told Nathan there in the, in, in the story that Nathan told him. This man, his anger, David's anger was greatly kindled. It rose up like a fire, his anger did, against that man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord, he swears by God, as the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And then Nathan tells him, you are the man. He, he sees this sin that I've committed. It's deserving of death. For his sins to be blotted out. He, he requests for his sins to be blotted out. To be cleansed in verse 2. Oh, wash me clean from my iniquity, from the filth of my sin. Cleanse me, O oh God, that I might be pure. Isaiah 43, 24 through 25. Listen to what it says. You have not brought me sweet cane with money. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. Listen to what the Lord tells through the prophet Isaiah. But you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities. But listen to what he says to the prophet Isaiah. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. This is what David is pleading with the Lord to do. Blot out my sins. Do you see what he says to Nathan there in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13? He says to him, I have sinned against the Lord. But Nathan tells him, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling, blot, listen, blotting out, right? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. If God says, here's my law, you break it, you die. Right? Is that not the guilt debt? Is that not the, the record of debt that is against us? We owe him our debt, which is our death. The soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. And then listen to what he says. By canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, listen to what he did. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. Sinner, don't think for an instant that your sin isn't there because you have forgotten about it. There is nothing you can do to blot out your own sin. The only way... The only method, 
the only one that can blot out your sin is God applying the sacrifice of God incarnate to your account, wiping away the guilt debt by way of placing it on Christ. It's still paid for. Sin required death. No ands, ifs, or buts. Christ died. If we are God's people, our debt was transferred to Christ. He was our substitute. He went there on our behalf. And He wiped away that guilt death, debt by placing God placing it on Christ and then we in exchange get to be clothed with His righteousness. In Psalm 51.3, David says he puts forth his sin and admits his guilt. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It wasn't, David wasn't saying here that he didn't wrong Uriah and that there wasn't sin against Uriah. He wasn't saying here that he didn't sin against his people. He didn't sin against the law. He didn't sin against Nathan even. He, this is not him saying, I, I did nothing wrong to them, to Bathsheba, to Uriah, any of these. But what he's saying is the greatest offense, the overarching offense, is that it's against God. That's what he's saying when he says, against you and you alone, or you only have I sinned. It's against God's authority and against His right as Creator and God to whom offense is really made. You know, if I sin against my kids, if I tell my kids a lie, they don't have a whole lot of authority over me at this point in their lives, do they? My penalty and my, my sin against them is, there, there's not a whole lot there. If I sin against my neighbor even, he doesn't have authority over me like the President of the United States or the governor, right? But, but God, you know, His authority is ultimate. He has all authority. So if I sin against my kids, if I sin against my neighbor, if I sin against the, the mayor or the governor, um, it's, it's an offense. There's an offense there. But they don't hold the universe in the palm of their hand, right? They, they don't command the sun to rise and to set. They don't set the boundaries of the sea. They didn't create the world. And they don't preserve it by the power of their word. There is an offense against them, but what David is saying here is my offense is so much higher against God than it is against even Uriah, who I had murdered. And he says, and done what is evil in your sight. The end of verse 4. 
In verse 5, he continues to show the depth of his sin. He says that, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Well, he's not saying that the act of his conception was sinful, but that he's born a sinful individual. He came from the womb, as Psalm says, speaking lies. And then where I want to I kind of start to end this, in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken, these bones that are so overcome with guilt and, and, and sorrow over their sin, let them rejoice. Well, he's pleading when he begs to be purged with hyssop and washed whiter than snow. He's pleading for the only cure for sin and its penalties. Blood must be applied. The blood of a sacrifice. Though his sins have polluted his very character, he seeks a washing, a cleaning, a purifying. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be whiter or white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Well, where does this... So this hyssop that he mentions was a part of ceremonial cleansing. Um, a leper was cleansed in part by taking, they took two doves and they had a basin of water and they uh, sacrificed the dove over the water and then they dipped the, the hyssop in the bowl and they would sprinkle that over the leper to cleanse them. A defiled house would be cleansed by way of taking hyssop branch and going across the walls in the house with this hyssop branch. We even find, if you remember, an exodus at the Passover. You remember this? Then Moses called all the elders in, in Exodus uh, 12, called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin. And touch the lintel on the two doorposts on your house. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass over and strike the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts. In Leviticus, here, where, where this is, is talking about the, the leprous disease, he shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them in the, in the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water and he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. He's asking for sacrificial blood to be applied to him. It's what he's asking for. Well, how does this relate to Christ? How does this relate to us today? Well, look with me real quick at Hebrews 9. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to Hebrews 9. 
I can get there. Verse 18. Hebrews 9.18. I get accused of not saying the verse number a lot. Hebrews 9.18. We're going to read through verse 26. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took, now listen, he took the blood of calves and goats with, wall, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this blood, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled the he, in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest would have to do over and over again with this hyssop branch applying the blood. <clears throat> Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see what the blood of Christ does? David here, when he says, purge me with hyssop and wash me and I'll be whiter than snow, he is in fact through the sacrificial system that they had in that day looking forward to the time when Christ would come and he would offer himself the one and only pure, perfect sacrifice and by His blood be purified. This is the gospel. This is it. Whiter than snow, cleansing us, washing us with His blood, clothing us with His righteousness. You who are stained with sin may be washed, may be purged, your sins may be blotted out, gone. If you're still unsaved... Let David's begging and pleading be your own. Let them be your own. Cry those same words that David cried to the Father yourself. Take God at His word. Repent of your sin. Beg for a washing. Plead to be purged with the blood of Christ. There's so many times through Scripture... Christ told the woman at the well, if you just would have asked for the water that I have, it's eternal. It's eternal. Christ told in, in John, 
He said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. What is he drawn him for, to himself for? For purging of sin, for washing, for regeneration. This is what all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to, what David was begging for, pleading for. All these Old Testament sacrifices were imperfect, pointing to the perfect sacrifice of God, that God Himself provided. That John looked at as he's coming, John the Baptist, and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Takes away the sins of the world. We don't have the time to look at the rest of verse 51, or chapter 51 of Psalm. Psalms, but do you see what this leads to when we read it? What does this purging, what is this washing that God has promised to do for His people when they seek Him? What, it, what does it do in us? Well, it creates praise, adoration, witness. He's going to teach others about this forgiveness. He's going to show others the washing of regeneration. He's going to show others how they may be purged with the blood to be right before God, to be forgiven, to have their sins blotted out. Giving testimony to what God has done. You know, there's something else here that I wish we had time to look at, but you know, God only allowed sacrifices to be made by a select group of people in the Old Testament, the priests. Christ has made us all a royal priesthood to honor Him with the sacrifice of our lips, to praise Him, to adore Him, to worship Him. Given us the ability through this washing, through this purging, through the sacrifice of Himself to draw near to God and to worship Him and to praise Him for what He's done. Well, let us remember this this morning um, as we conclude the message part and we take part in the Lord's Supper, this is what we're celebrating. This is what we're doing in remembrance until He comes. Right? His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. So let's remember that as we, as we take the Lord's Supper. Amen.